So we're starting a new series that will take us from now until spring break. Woo! Woo! Spring break. I just had to say it. Spring break. And uh, we're looking at different big questions about the faith, but we're starting um, with how do we actually talk to people who aren't yet believers? That's what we're talking about tonight. And the next week about why the Bible, and the week after that, why Jesus, and then why evil, and then why the church. So that's, that's the lineup. That's where we're going. But we're going to start with how do we talk with friends of ours, family members, people we know and love who aren't yet believers. And if we're honest with each other, uh, when we start to think about talking with people who aren't yet believers, I'm going to guess that a lot of us get a little anxious. We start, we start to wonder, like, what exactly am I supposed to say? And we get anxious because the stakes are high, right? The stakes couldn't be higher. We want this person whom we know and love to know our Jesus. We want this person whom we know and love to come to faith, to have the hope of an eternity with a God who wipes away the tears from their eyes. We want our friends and family to have that hope. So we know that the stakes are high. And we also actually kind of doubt our ability to answer their questions. Like, what if they ask me about the virgin birth? I don't really know what to say about that. What if they ask me about the flood? Like, I don't know what to say about the flood. Like, what, what if they ask me a question that I can't answer? What if I blow it? Now, our anxiety tends to come from two primary assumptions, both of which are false. The first one is, we think it's all about us. We think that in this one conversation, we're going to do it. We're going to like bring the person home. Like this is it. This is the moment. This is going to happen and it's all up to me. No, it's not. That's not all up to you. You feel better now? It's not all up to you. You see, how a person comes to faith is actually very mysterious. Because it's not up to us. It's up to God. God is the one who works in a person's life to turn their heart toward him. It's God. God does it. Now, we have to be ready when he gives us the prompt and he wants to use us and speak through us. We need to be ready, but we also need to be aware that this is mysterious and it's organic. And by that, I mean there's like no secret formula. There's no, like, magic words you can say that suddenly your friends are going to look you in the eye and go, oh, that's it? And that the formula that worked for your friend will work for your friend, will work for your mom, will work for your dad. Like, there's no secret formula. It's mysterious. It's organic. It's all about God. The other thing we need to think about is we have this idea that you're either not a Christian or you're a Christian. Not a Christian? Christian. Not a Christian? Like, like, there's this move, like, you're suddenly, like, you know, totally secular and pagan and into all evil things, and then Jesus, right? And that's an assumption that also makes us anxious. So there are these uh, two, two guys, Don Everts and Doug Schaup, who wrote a book called I Once Was Lost, which I really recommend. Super easy to read. No quiz at all, um, except, you know, the eternity of your friends, NBD. Um, 
Don't be anxious. It's all on God. <laughs> it's really terrific. So Doug and Don are two campus pastors who have spent their whole ministries on big universities watching people move from disbelief to belief. And they suggest that instead of Christianity or faith being a binary state where you either are not or you are, they suggest that there are five thresholds that people move through from not believing to being all in for the kingdom. Five different thresholds. And one of the really cool things about the book is that once you go through it and then you start to think about stories from the New Testament particularly where people get converted, you see those five thresholds in Scripture again and again and again and again. So we're going to take a look at those thresholds, how they come up in Scripture, and then we're going to take a look at how they may come up in our lives as we're encountering our friends who don't yet believe. So I invite you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 8. The black books are the Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, please take one. Page 892 in the Pew Bibles, page 892, Acts 8, beginning, at, we'll read at verse 26. Let me tell you where we are in the story, though. So Jesus has died, he has risen. He has spent time with his disciples, 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven. And 10 days later, there was the Feast of Pentecost, the Jewish festival of Pentecost. And on the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit just lit up the place. And since then, the disciples, the 12, and all the people who were with them and know them and love them have just been talking like crazy about Jesus to everybody. It's just been nuts. And one of the disciples' names is Philip. And it's his story that we pick up here in chapter 8, verse 26. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you're reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. 
When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Now, there are so many really interesting things going on in this passage. You need to know that um, a eunuch was somebody who had been castrated in order to serve female royalty. They often did this to slaves. Sometimes there were certain classes of people who were cultivated for this particular role. This particular person was high up in the kingdom, in the monarchy. He had immense power. He had immense wealth. Now, something's been going on with this guy. And if we walk through the five thresholds, we're going to see that God's been up to some pretty cool things in his life. So the first threshold that our friends Doug and Don suggest is this. They said this is the first one, trusting a Christian. That's the first threshold. Now, we can read this story in Acts 8 and say, well, obviously, he trusted Philip. There you go. However, there's a whole huge backstory going on here. Somewhere, someone pointed him to the God of the Jews. We don't know who, but there was a believer, a follower of Yahweh, who said, you've got to look at this. There are these people, and they only worship one God. It's amazing, just one. And they all get together like a few times a year in this one city called Jerusalem, and they've got this temple there, and it's amazing. And they all worship together in the temple. They all, everybody comes together to worship this one God. And he had enough of a relationship with this person to go, huh, that's really interesting. And this is what happens next. Number two. He becomes curious. He becomes curious. In fact, those of you who know where Ethiopia is, can you picture it in your mind? It's in Africa, all right? He becomes so curious that he makes the pilgrimage all the way up to Jerusalem to see what this thing is about. Now, this is not a light undertaking. It's not a light undertaking in 2017. It was very difficult in the first century. This was not a well-traveled path from Ethiopia up to Jerusalem. He becomes so curious that he goes all the way to Jerusalem, which shows the third thing. He's opening himself up to change. He's opening himself up to the idea that his life is going to be different. Now, what's particularly interesting in this journey from this black Ethiopian eunuch to the Jews in the temple, he had to be aware that there were specific rules in the Torah that said eunuchs were not allowed in the temple courts. They could stand around the edges, but they were very much on the margins. They were very much on the outside. And so he could go all the way up, and he could have his life open to change, but there was a certain point that he couldn't pass, where he wasn't welcome, 
where he was an outsider. But that doesn't stop him. He is so open to change that he keeps doing the next thing, which is number four. He seeks after God. He is hungry for God. Now, what country was this person from? What was he reading? What language was that in? Hebrew. He's reading Hebrew out loud. That's somebody who is hungry for God. That is someone who is hungry for knowledge. So hungry that he goes to a different country. Now, the Jews were not well known. This is not a big, mighty empire. He goes all the way up, and somehow he disciples himself under somebody and says, please teach me Hebrew. Now imagine, you're the Jewish rabbi. This black eunuch comes to you and says, hey, could you teach me Hebrew? You're thinking, seriously? Okay. So he learns Hebrew, and that's not only that. What was he reading from? Isaiah, but what was the, like, tablet, iPhone? What was he reading from? A scroll. A scroll. Now, unlike now, when we all have copies of Bibles and we kind of swim around with copies of Bibles, the act of copying Scripture was so tightly legislated. There had to be certain people who did it, who went through certain rituals of cleansing ahead of time. The scroll had to be of a certain kind of parchment, prepared in a certain way. The people would, would mark, would copy exactly one thing to the next thing, and if they made a mistake, like they could be deep, they could be in chapter 53 of Isaiah, and if they made a mistake, they'd have to burn the scroll. Start all over again. Scrolls were not easy to come by, and they were incredibly expensive. This Ethiopian is so hungry for God that he learns Hebrew and buys a scroll, probably more than one, because he wants to know what is this God really all about? I need to know everything I can about this God. And this is the point where Philip comes into the story. And now Philip, you know, the spirit, again, remember who really does the work here? The spirit like sets it all up. And so he hears him reading Isaiah out loud because, uh, P.S., that's the way they read back then. The idea of reading quietly like y'all do now actually a very novel idea in the history of the world. They read out loud. That's why um, it's, it's about like Augustine's time-ish that people just read silently to themselves. Fun fact. So he's reading out loud, which is why Philip walks up and he doesn't have to ask him, like, what are you reading? What part is that? Because he knows what part it is. He knows it's Isaiah. He knows it's, it's kind of toward the middle, toward the end. Like, that's where it is, because they didn't have numbers. It was just scrolling. Scrolling. <laughs> he's just scrolling. So he walks up and he says to him, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy's like, I, I, I don't get this at all. I don't have no idea, right? Which is every now and then when we're reading scripture, all of us have had that moment where we're like, I'm, I'm sorry, I have no idea what this is about. And, and Philip says, oh, 
Well, let me tell you. And the passage that he's reading, Isaiah 53, right? We're just, we're weeks after the resurrection. And Philip gets to say, this scripture passage has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The Messiah has come. He has died, just like it said. But he also rose again. And he ascended. And this is his promise. This is his word for us. That this promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to guess, and we're going to have to ask him this in the new heavens and the new earth. I'm going to guess that Philip then said to him, roll a little bit this way. Because Hebrews, you know, other way. Roll a little bit this way. Because there's another passage I want to read for you. Isaiah 56. Do not let the foreigner joined to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I'm just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, who fold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls. Get it? In my house and within my walls. A monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I shall give them an everlasting lane that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it, and hold fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, says your God. Is it any surprise that as soon as Philip started to talk about Jesus as the fulfillment of this promise, as the one who broke down the walls, as the one who says to this Ethiopian, you are now part of the family. You get to be in. You get to be in just as much as I am in. Just as much as I, the Jewish kid who grew up in the faith, always goes to the temple, knows the synagogue, knows the scripture. You're just as in as I am in. Is it any wonder that the Ethiopian says, I want to get baptized. I'm all in. This is the best news I've ever heard. That's the gospel. And that's number five. Entering the kingdom. That's the commitment That's saying, I'm all in. And I'm not sure if we have any of our Ethiopian students here tonight. But let me tell you something. Ethiopian church is old and it is deep. And they have claims on some amazing stories. This man went back and he did not keep it to himself. It says in the text that he went on his way rejoicing. Can you imagine? He goes back to Ethiopia. He's like, guys, guys. I gotta tell you, there's this God. 
and we, we all get to be in, and we all get to be in the temple. And they're all like, I'm sorry, what are you talking about right now? And he's like, okay, let me read you a little Hebrew. And they're like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> but he could not stop talking about the fact that there was this God who wanted them, the Ethiopians, to be part of his story. It's amazing. It's amazing. And we get to do that now. We get to claim that for our own selves, and we get to walk our friends through that. So let's, let's go back to the first thing, Elise. Let's go back to the beginning and think about how these five moves might play themselves out in our lives and with our friends. Trusting a Christian. It's the first step. They have to trust a Christian. Several months ago, President Leroy was on a plane. He's on a plane a lot. And he was, uh, it was a short flight. I can't remember if it was from Detroit to Grand Rapids or Minneapolis, Chicago. It wasn't, it wasn't a long one. He sits down in the, in the seat, and the person sits down next to him. And as the plane takes off, the person starts to talk to him about Jesus for the entire flight. <laughs> Does not let him talk. So he's on the flight the whole time. This guy's talking about Jesus and what he's meant for him and look at this and the Gospels and proving different things to him. And President Leroy's like... And so the plane comes in for the landing and the guy says, you know, well, what do you think about the things that I've been telling you? (laughs) And Michael reaches into his business, business card and says, well, I'm the president of a Christian college, and I've been a follower of Jesus for quite some time. <laughs> and the person was like, oh, 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 uh, good. <laughs> that was not a person who was interested in having President Leroy trust him. That's a person who is interested in what in the gospel to like check something off his to-do list for the day. That was way more about that person than it was about President Leroy. When we make our relationships with our non-believing friends and family members all about like I gotta blunt the gospel to them, I gotta move them along the path, I gotta get them somewhere, they'll know. They'll know we're in relationship for an agenda. People need to trust you because they trust you, because they like you, because you have things in common. Maybe you work with somebody. You're the first Christian that they've ever really known. It may take them a while to trust you. Maybe you go out on an internship, or you go student teaching, or you're in the uh, hospital doing your nursing things, and you find somebody who's really been hurt by the church. It's going to take them a while to trust you. But this is the first step. They need to be able to trust that you like them just because you like them, not because you have an agenda for them, but that you just like them and you want to be with them and you want them to have a good life. The first thing is people need to trust us. The second thing. We want them to become curious, and not just like curious about like the world, like tell me more about squirrels. No. 
We want them to become curious specifically about Jesus. We want them to become curious about Jesus. And so, this is how you do that. You say things in conversation, like with somebody who knows you, who trusts you. You may say, you know, I have this sermon on Sunday, and there are some things that Jesus did that I just don't get, and I just keep thinking about it. That shows that you're also curious about Jesus, and you don't have all the answers, and you're trying to figure it out. And maybe you start to talk about who Jesus is for you and how you've come to know him. But you do it in a way that's not like, I need to tell you today about what Jesus means to me. Just work it in. Like, oh, I can't, uh, I can't go out with you guys on Wednesday because that's the night that I tutor. Why do you tutor? Well, it's kind of a Jesus thing. He said we need to, you know, take care of people. So I'm, this is my one little way of doing it. They become curious about Jesus when we live curious lives. If you live a life that looks just like their life, they're not going to get curious about Jesus. If you live a life that looks different from the other people's lives around them because you're giving your money away or you don't swear or you talk about your boyfriend or your girlfriend in ways that are uplifting and honoring, if you live a curious life, they'll become curious about Jesus. And if you talk about your curiosity about Jesus, that just adds to it. So you want to pray for them to become curious about Jesus. The third thing, opening up to change. Now, the authors of the book point out that this is a spot where a lot of people get stuck. Because they start to realize that if they're actually going to follow this Jesus thing and they're actually going to take some more steps, they're going to have to change some stuff. And they probably don't want to change some stuff. Like, they're going to have to get up on Sunday mornings and go to church. And they like to sleep in on Sunday mornings. They're going to have to get their sex life under control. They don't really want to do that. Maybe they have to give up partying. They don't really want to do that. Maybe they have to start giving money away. Who wants to do that? They know as they become curious about Jesus and they watch how you live, they think, I'm going to need to make some changes. I don't know yet. So if you've got somebody that you love who's in this spot, just give them a little time and pray them through it. Because this is big. This is a big turning point to say, I'm actually going to change my life in response to what I understand about Jesus. And you, my Jesus-following friend. Fourth thing, seeking after God. Now, this may look like somebody who says, all right, I'll go to your Bible study. Okay, I'll go along on the mission trip. I want to see what this is about. I've never been to Honduras. I'll go. Somebody who's like, I want to know more about this stuff. Teach me a little bit more. Now, they may not, you know, buy a scroll and learn Hebrew. That's, that's kind of like a high level. But they have a deep desire. You can sense it in them that their heart is opening up more and more to the ideas about faith. And this may be a point like Philip had with the, the, the Ethiopian where you get to just lay out the whole gospel to them. They may actually ask you, okay, uh, 
Jesus died for us. I kind of get that. But like, what? Can you just explain the gospel to me? And now, if this is a moment that makes you go, uh, then your heart starts being and your palms start getting a little, that's totally normal. And I'm going to give you a tool that you can use. And I'm going to walk through this for you. And you may think, wow, that's fantastic. I'm totally going to use it. Or you may think, eh, a little cheesy, not so much. Fine, that's fine. But it's something. When we get a little stymied and we'll get a little tongue-tied and we're like, I'm not quite sure how to explain the gospel to somebody, here's one way to do it. All right. <laughs> Just checking. So you might ask them something like, when you look at the world, and you pay attention to the news, what do you think is going on there? It's not great, right? We have this world, and there's political division, and we have the refugee crisis, and uh, health problems, mental health issues, depression, cancer. I mean, the world is just messed up. But not only that, I think we can also say that we're messed up, that there's a division between people. Families get broken up, marriages get broken up, friendships break down. And I would also say that the relationship we have with God, this, this relationship that's to hold us and nurture us, that even that's kind of messed up. And this happened because we made it all about us. We wanted everything to be all about us. And anytime we make it about us and we turn towards selfishness, like things go bad. Now, we feel, don't we, that the world's supposed to be different than this. We deeply long for the world to be different than it is. And just like hunger points us to like, we need food, we need something, our longing for a different world points to either maybe there once was a world that was better than this, or maybe someday there is going to be a world that's better than this, because this can't be all there is. Well, as a Christian, I think that the world was designed for good. I think God created the planet to run on a beautiful ecosystem. And he created his people to love each other and be loved by him. And that when these people loved each other and they loved God and they loved their world, really good things happened. But they didn't last very long because they became selfish. And they turned away from God and they turned toward each other and that's what we got right here. This beautiful world became damaged by evil. That's kind of where we are. Except that I think that God loved the world even though it was this messed up. That God loved it so much, this really messed up world with messed up people, that he sent his son Jesus. 
And through Jesus' death, all this crappy stuff in the world dies. And through Jesus' death, we have the hope that it won't always be like this because Jesus' death is like pushing the big undo button on all the sorrow and heartache and brokenness in the world. I believe that the world gets restored by Jesus. I believe that I get restored by Jesus. And then, even though this world is broken and messed up, when we're restored by Jesus and our relationship with God starts to be put back together, we are sent out. We care about things that aren't ourselves. And we are sent together to heal. We want to make this world a better place. And now you may say, well, why can't we just go from here to here? Like, that'd be pretty nice. But the thing is, we ourselves are damaged. We need to be fixed. And the, the things here, if we tried to do them on our own, we would get so tired and worn out because we're, we're damaged, we're evil, and we need power. We need Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit to help us. And one of the cool things about the church is that it has been on the forefront of some of the cool social justice movements of the day, civil rights, abolition, women's suffrage. Gandhi got the nonviolence idea from Jesus. The church has been on the forefront of all of those things. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks, side note. But I believe that that's what we're doing. And I believe that someday Jesus will come back and it'll look something like that again. So that's how I'm living. And I know I don't get it right all the time because I'm still damaged. I'm not fully healed. I need Jesus. But I'm trying to live a life that moves from damage to restoration, to healing. Now, if you're talking about this with someone who's not yet a believer, you may ask them, like, where would you put yourself in this? Like, where do you see yourself? Are you overwhelmed by evil? Do you think the world's a really great place? Everything's going fine? Because then we need to have to talk about reality and what's actually happening. Do you think maybe you, you get the Jesus thing, you understand that you need forgiveness? but maybe you're not yet all in on the mission. Like, where would you, where would you place yourself? I would say my, my best moments, I'm, I'm here because of Jesus, but I still very much feel the effect of that. And I keep looking back at the cross, and I keep hoping and praying for this. And what you really want is for the person you love like Philip and the Ethiopian, to put themselves in the story. You really want the person that you love to see themselves as damaged, in need of healing, in need of forgiveness, and you want them to know that the only way that comes is through Jesus. That's what you want. 
And it, this conversation could happen as step one. It could happen step two, step three, step four. I don't know. But our deep hope and prayer is that eventually they get all the way over to that last circle where they join us in the mission of being sent together to seal. That's what we're trying to do. So that's a testimony that could work for you. Maybe, maybe not. It's easy. There's actually an app for it. I am not kidding you. And if it's something you think, I just need to know that for myself tonight. I just need to remember that there's a move, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. I just need to remember that God is always up to something. I just need to remember that the fall is not the end of the story. I need to remember tonight that Jesus has paid the price for me. Yes, I want to be able to talk to my not-yet-believing family and friends, but maybe right now, tonight, you need to remember right here in this place that Jesus died for you to forgive your sins, to heal your past, to bring you into a whole new life. And maybe you find yourself in the list of things that you're kind of moving between three and four, like you know you have to change some things, but you're not quite there, and you know, I don't know if I really want to change this thing. And the Holy Spirit tonight is saying to you, it's time for you to move from three to four. It's time for you to change some things and start seeking after God. It's time for you to say, I repent and I believe, and I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. Because what was so amazing in that story in the book of Acts is that Philip had this overflow of what God in Christ had done for him that he couldn't help but tell it to this Ethiopian. It just poured out of him. And then the Ethiopian just took it back and evangelized his whole country. It's the joy that we have. It's the hope that we have, that this world will someday be better. That's what makes us different from every other person on the planet. We actually believe that someday this world that was designed for good will be good again. Don't be anxious and talking about your faith with people you know and love. You're not always going to get it right. That's okay. Keep trying. Keep talking. Keep telling the story of what God has done for you, about how you were an outcast and he brought you in, about how you were damaged goods and he healed you, about how you were lost in sin and he set you free. Tell your story. Tell your story. Because your story is part of the big story.